baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley, and after a brief hiatus, we're back to our baseball and Braves discussion as the World Series is in the books. We're in the midst of awards season, and of course, the hot stove season has begun as free agents are now out there and clubs can begin starting to tinker with their rosters and making the big moves that can line them up for what they hope will be a big 2020 season. And that, no doubt, is what the Atlanta Braves are looking for as they made a host of moves this week and get set to do their winter shopping as well. We'll get into all of that, break down the recent moves, and also take a look at what might be on the horizon for the Braves. And we'll also discuss the Modern Era Hall of Fame ballot because there's a name on there that most Braves fans know as being synonymous with the club for the decade of the 1980s, and that, of course, is Dale Murphy. I've had a chance to have Dale on the show, gotten to talk a lot of baseball with him over the past few years, and I think he's a very worthy candidate. But this ballot of 10 men, 9 players, and 1 executive It's going to be really fascinating to see who, if any of these guys, can separate themselves from what, to me, looks like some pretty stiff competition on this ballot. But Dale Murphy has another chance to gain entry to Cooperstown. And to help me talk about all of that, I'm going to have Graham Womack on the show a little bit later. And we'll chat about all things Hall of Fame when it comes to the special committees, the modern era ballot on which Dale Murphy is up for election to the Hall of Fame yet again. Before we get into any of that, I want to invite you to subscribe to the podcast. You can find From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Appreciate all your ratings and reviews. Keep those coming, and be sure to follow along on social media. On Twitter, you can find the show at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. I am at Grant McCauley. That's G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. On Instagram, the show is at From the Diamond with no underscore, and I am at Grant McCauley on Instagram as well. And you can find everything at FromTheDiamond.com. I'm going to answer a few fan questions on this episode, and I'm going to continue doing that throughout the hot stove season as the Braves and the rest of baseball begin to make all their moves. But let's get this show started with the week that was in Atlanta Braves news, and Monday was a very big day for some contract decisions for the Braves and, of course, the rest of Major League Baseball. So we'll catch up on all of them and break them down one by one, but let's just go through what the Braves did on Monday when it came time to make decisions on team options and also a qualifying offer. That's right, the Braves have extended the $17.8 million qualifying offer to third baseman Josh Donaldson. It really comes as no surprise. We'll talk about it more in a moment. But the club was very busy on Monday, declining its team option on four players. Nick Markakis and Tyler Flowers each got a $2 million buyout and each signed $4 million contracts for 2020, so they'll be back in the fray. But Julio Tehran's $12 million option was bought out for $1 million, and the team half of the mutual option for Billy Hamilton was also declined by the Braves, which means that Tehran and Hamilton are now officially free agents. So let's dissect some of these moves and hear from Braves general manager Alex Anthopoulos, who discussed it all with the media on Monday. 
Donaldson will be turning 34 this winter, had a huge season for the Braves, and most importantly for him and for the team, he stayed healthy all year long. One year, $23 million was the gamble the Braves took, and it was a very good one as Donaldson was playing up to his MVP level for most of the season. After a slow start, he finished with 37 home runs. He was one of the best defensive third basemen in baseball, and he gave the Braves something they had really lacked for a long time, and that was a credible cleanup hitter behind Freddie Freeman. In fact, he wasn't just a credible cleanup hitter. Donaldson helped the Braves lineup become incredible when they switched everything around in the middle portion of May with Ronald Acuna Jr. moving to leadoff. Ozzie Albies and Dansby Swanson split time at number two in the order. You had Freeman at three and Donaldson at four. And that top of the order for the Braves really helped the offense become one of the best in the National League. And that's, I think, what you can expect when you have a guy like Donaldson right in the heart of the order and producing like we've seen before. I think health was the only thing that was going to be the question mark when it came to Donaldson, both for productivity's sake and also with the Braves making the decision to extend this qualifying offer, which comes as no surprise after the season he had. Now, Donaldson has 10 days to decline or accept the offer. I have a pretty good feeling he's going to be declining this offer because this is what he wanted and his side was looking for was a very big, healthy season so he could go out and get the multi-year deal that just was not there a year ago. So you have to imagine that Josh Donaldson is going to be one of the more sought-after slugging third basemen on the market, but there are quite a few, and it's headlined by Anthony Rendon, who's a heck of a player coming off what was, I think, an MVP-caliber performance all season long, and also in the postseason, he came up big with the Washington Nationals. He is a bit younger than Josh Donaldson. You also have Mike Moustakas out there as a free agent, so teams are going to have some options. But there's going to be a big derby when it comes to Anthony Rendon. And then Josh Donaldson might be the player that a lot of clubs could pivot to if they either come up short on trying to sign Rendon or simply get priced out of what could be a big-time bidding war for his services. Let's hear from Braves General Manager Alex Anthopoulos on what he expects going forward as the team tries to bring back Josh Donaldson for 2020 and beyond. From the outset, the hope was that he would have a great year and we'd be in this position to you know, bring him back. Obviously, you know, qualifying offer made sense for us, but you know, we haven't changed our stance of we'd like to have him back and we'll talk to him, but he's earned the right to test the market and talk to clubs and get a sense of his value. So we'll keep um, open communication and dialogue and we'll stay close to his agent and we're going to have to let the process play out. So ultimately, it's, like I said, it's not salary arbitration, it's free agency. So he'll have a chance to um, you know, see what his value is in the free agent market and at that point hopefully we can line up on a deal with him now, two other moves that kind of go in lockstep with one another and that's the re-signing of tyler flowers and nick markakis both these men are getting the same deal as i mentioned earlier their options were declined so they got two million dollar buyouts and then they got brand new four million dollar contracts for 2020 no options on those so it is a true one-year deal for both of those guys but I think you had to hedge your bets at catcher to have somebody on your roster that could handle the staff, somebody that you're familiar with. As you go out and try to find what's likely to be your primary catcher, you have to have somebody who's capable of at least sharing the duties behind the plate. And Tyler Flowers, I think, is capable of doing that. He's coming off a couple of rough seasons, really offensively speaking. And then defensively in 2019, it was surprisingly bad at times, the struggles he had, particularly with pass balls. But for Flowers, I think there's always been a camaraderie and a comfort level that the Braves staff has with him. And I also think his pitch framing, which some people kind of overlook or just don't want to admit how important that can be, 
that is an aspect that he brings to the team that is among the best in baseball. So there are some pros to bringing back Tyler, and I think far more pros than cons, but I don't think it's going to preclude the Braves from going out and looking for other upgrades at that position. And I think Yasmani Grandal is going to be a name high on the wish list for possibly the Braves and many other teams most certainly. Flowers turns 34 this winter, which is certainly not old for a catcher or really for a baseball player in general, but the Braves really don't have a youngster they could call up to lean on at this time. Their first-round draft pick, Shaylane Galeers, just taken last summer, not ready to step into a major league role just yet. And, of course, William Contreras, the younger brother of Wilson Contreras of the Cubs, their all-star catcher. I don't think William's quite ready either, as he had some struggles in double-A, so both those men are going to need some more time. And we saw a little bit of Alex Jackson last year, but offensively speaking, a lot of question marks there, and I just don't think the Braves were comfortable with any of the internal options down on the farm, and certainly not comfortable enough to allow Tyler Flowers to hit the open market and have to be shopping for at least two catchers in the winter. That's just not a place the Braves wanted to be. When it comes to Nick Markakis, he'll be turning 36 in a couple of weeks, and he spent the last five seasons with the Braves and a pretty solid play. It's not the most spectacular that you'll see, but that's kind of the calling card of Nick Markakis. It's about as steady as it gets. 284 batting average, 359 on base percentage, 403 slugging percentage, and 750 games for the Braves. Of course, he was sidelined last year for a month and a half with a fractured left wrist, returned in September, and his play has been solid, and I would say maybe even workmanlike. But his quiet leadership and professionalism is something that's endeared Markakis to his teammates, of course, his manager, and also a lot of Braves fans and folks in the Braves front office. So he's a guy who's going to be back in the mix this year. Just like Flowers, his option was for $6 million, could have been picked up. Braves chose to decline that, pay a $2 million buyout, then sign him to a $4 million deal. If you're wondering why the Braves would do that, it's more for the accounting purposes of getting everything they can onto this year's payroll budget and then opening up and having at least a little bit more to spend when it comes to 2020. Because instead of paying both these men $6 million on next year's payroll, both players get their $6 million and the Braves will have the other funds to spend on different things this winter. So I think that's a little bit of creative accounting that could help the Braves in their pursuits of other players and using those funds in different ways. And Nick Markakis has been, for the most part, an everyday player. We saw that start to break up a little bit as he came back after the wrist injury last year. But I think going into 2020, it could be a very different year for Nick because there are a couple of minor league prospects that could be on the rise. We'll see how that all plays out. There's an entire winter to do some shopping, and the Braves will have to add some different pieces, and they also have Adam Duvall in the mix as well. When it comes to what to expect for Nick Markakis in 2020, Alex Anthopoulos talked about that plan as well. We've talked to Nick, and the plan would be to have him in a platoon role. So but we want to make sure to you know, talk through that with him, and he was all on board and basically expressed that anything that he could do to help the team, you know, be in a platoon role, play left field, um, obviously, we have Adam Duvall, who's eligible for salary arbitration again, and you know we'll work through that come December. Um, you know, we did talk to him about being in a platoon role, and he was fully uh, willing to do that in left field. And as he stated many times, he would do whatever the team needed him to do. So, as you heard, Adam Duvall is up for arbitration. The Braves have one more year of control of him. But they also have some minor league prospects by the name of Christian Pache, who's one of the best defensive outfielders in probably all of baseball already. And, of course, Drew Waters, who has a bit of a higher offensive profile than does Pache. 
but both of these guys were long shots to make the club out of spring training. I asked Alex Anthopoulos what the expectation is for both Christian Pache and Drew Waters when it comes to 2020. Yeah, I think it's fair to say because they just got to Gwinnett at the end of the year, the expectation is that they'll both start there next year. I guess, of course, things can change, and we hope, similar to what Austin Riley did this season, that at some point they're playing so well that they force our hand, and um, we have to find a spot for them. But right now, going into 20, the expectation is that they'll both be starting in Gwinnett, get more time at that level since they just got there at the end the last month and just continue to get the experience. Neither of those guys got a lot of time at AAA, so it makes sense to give them a little bit more. Pache struggled offensively. Waters really strikeouts with a big thing for him. He'll have to cut those down a little bit before he makes it to Atlanta. But both these guys, very exciting players. Expect to see them in big league camp in 2020. And I would imagine they're going to get a pretty good amount of playing time so you can figure out what exactly you've got there. And one or both of them could be ready by mid to early summer. And both of them should be up by September, I would think, if the Braves want to get a good look at what the future could be. And both those men may earn that call-up. So we'll see. We'll cross all those bridges when we get there. But it's exciting to have two more top prospects knocking on the door in AAA. But a little bit of work left to do in the minor leagues. And for the Braves, plenty of work left to do this winter to figure out what the picture is going to be in the outfield for Atlanta next season. Meanwhile, not all the moves were players coming back and looking at the future. One of them might be the end of a run in Atlanta for Julio Tehran that lasted over a decade when you go back to his signing with the club in 2007. Tehran's still just 28 years old, but he's been a fixture in the Atlanta rotation since 2013. His results have been varied over the past few seasons. There's been a lot of Jekyll and Hyde, a lot of ups and downs. He finished last year with a 10-11 and record, a 381 ERA. He's always outperformed his peripherals as his fielding independent pitching was nearly a run higher than his ERA yet again. And those numbers ended up being almost identical to his 2018 season, both of those better than his 2017 season, the first in SunTrust Park, when he struggled so mightily. Tehran has made 30 or more starts in seven consecutive years. He's one of just four pitchers in baseball to do that. And I think that durability has been one of the big things that have had the Braves leaning on him quite a bit as all the other pieces in the rotation have been changed out over and over and over since the Braves began their rebuild and really since Tehran's major league career began in full with his 2013 rookie season in which he stepped up and was one of the better young pitchers in the National League. If you look at the Braves' rotation heading into 2020 with what's already on hand, you've got Mike Soroka, you've got Mike Fultonevich, you've got Max Fried, Sean Newcomb has the possibility of perhaps making some more starts, And then as you start to look into the minor leagues, there's a handful of young pitchers, including Bryce Wilson and Kyle Wright, also Ian Anderson, and others that could be factors as you start to imagine who could be competing to be the club's fifth starter come spring training. Tehran had a $12 million option for 2020. The Braves declined that, buying it out for $1 million, and he is now a free agent. But Alex Anthopoulos had a lot of thoughts about what Tehran's future might hold and the fact that it may not be done in Atlanta signed and developed by the Braves, been here a long time, opening day starter for a lot of years and a big part of the organization. So I've had good dialogue with his agent and have not closed the door. We just at the option, um, you know, with where that was, where, where the salary was set, we elected to obviously decline it, but um, you know, we're not going to close the door and we'll continue to uh, stay in contact with him. Obviously he'll have a chance now to test the market and, talk to other teams, but I think um, there's an openness on both sides to continue the relationship. So, you know, we'll see where that leads. 
And for good housekeeping, the Braves, of course, acquired Billy Hamilton from the Royals, and that was after the July 31st trade deadline. So a waiver pickup of Billy Hamilton, I think it worked out pretty well. He showed some signs at the plate, but his everyday role may not be something he's going to find, even if he's out there shopping for one over the winter. I'm sure he'll do that, but if the Braves were able to bring him back for less than the $7.5 million that they declined on that option, I think it could be a nice pickup as a fourth or fifth outfielder because he brings defense, he brings speed, and it would give Kevin Seitzer some more time to work with him at the plate, and maybe Billy Hamilton will be able to chip in there occasionally, as he did down the stretch for the Braves so well in 2019. So those are the moves that the Braves made over the past week. A couple of players coming back, a couple of players hitting free agency, and of course Josh Donaldson getting the qualifying offer as the Braves will begin the job of putting together the team in the winter of 2019 to be all ready to go and defend their division crown come 2020. There's some other news going on this week as well as award season is upon us. The Braves did not have any gold glove winners this year, but they do have three silver sluggers, Freddie Freeman, Ronald Acuna Jr., and Ozzie Albies, each winning their first. So congratulations to all three of those men. A couple of other races to keep an eye on when it comes to awards. Mike Soroka is a finalist for National League Rookie of the Year, and Brian Snitker is up for Manager of the Year again in the National League as well. Now let's answer a couple of questions before we get our Hall of Fame chat going with Graham Womack. I asked for those on Twitter, where you can follow me, at Grant McCauley. I got a lot of questions about Josh Donaldson, so I'll kind of boil it down here. Lots of folks wanted to know, will the Braves be making an offer besides the qualifying offer? Well, of course, I believe they're going to engage in actual contract talks if they have not begun that process already. A lot of folks believe Anthony Rendon's going to get a six, seven-year deal that's going to be north of $200 million. I would not be surprised by that. If that is, in fact, where he lands, I don't think Josh Donaldson's going to be looking for something that large because, again, he's going to be turning 34. But a three-year deal at around what he was paid last year, if not more, is going to be the ballpark I think the Josh Donaldson negotiations could go. If you're the Braves, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, if you're able to get two guaranteed years, so age 34 and 35 season, and then have a vesting option for the third year that would pay him an even larger sum at that point based on plate appearances over the prior two years or perhaps just the 2021 season, and if he doesn't reach that, then have the buyout be a little bit higher so that it ends up guaranteeing Josh a big sum of money over those first couple of years, even if he doesn't end up taking the third year of that deal. Now, I don't know that he's going to be open to that, but just thinking from the perspective of trying to find a big annual average value, but also looking at the age of the player we're talking about, it may be difficult for him to find something beyond three years. But then again, there may be an American League club that comes out and says, hey, we'll give you four years or four years with an option. We'll see how the whole thing plays out. Donaldson has certainly put together a career that deserves a long-term contract. Health was the only thing that kept him from getting one last winter. So it'll be really fascinating to see what clubs go after him, especially depending on where Anthony Rendon signs or when Anthony Rendon signs as well. Another question from Twitter. It looks like most of the names suggested as potential Braves targets, and this among starting pitchers, Madison Bumgarner, Zach Wheeler, Jake Odorizzi, etc., now all have draft picks attached to them because they all receive qualifying offers. Will this be a deterrent to signing one, if not two, of these guys? I would say no, it's not going to be a deterrent to signing one. Two may be a bit of a long shot. I don't know. It, it, the big thing with the Braves that I think you look at from the draft pick compensation side of things is they're still under the international signing sanctions that they got from Major League Baseball a couple of years ago. With that still having time to go, it's harder to stock your minor league system, which means draft picks become a little bit more valuable. 
But this is also a club that's coming off back-to-back division titles that will have money to spend this winter that should be spending that money in order to make this club better. I think that's the goal. It doesn't always take the shape or the form that we expect for all 30 of the clubs. And for the Braves, I think they do have to be creative because they are a mid-level payroll, and that comes down from high above. But as far as draft pick compensation and qualifying offers, I'm not especially worried about that when it comes to the Braves being able to go out and make offers and try to sign some of these guys. It may just depend on what other clubs jump in and get interested and what the players are able to drum up in terms of the best possible offer. That's the big thing. You're competing with other clubs to sign these players. But no, I don't think that the qualifying offer in and of itself and the draft pick compensation that would come from signing one of the players you mentioned would be something that would stop the Braves from pursuing them whatsoever. You just want to make sure that whatever the player is that you're going after, that they're worth, number one, the contract that you're giving them, and then number two, paying the price when it comes to that compensatory draft pick. Got a question about the Nick Marcakis signing as well. Will Nick Marcakis actually be platooned, or does it matter since the vast majority of National League pitchers are right-handed? And that's a really good point. And when you do think about the platoon, the left-handed component of that, if you're just looking at handedness and not just matchups of the two players and what success they might be having against that night's starting pitcher, you're going to be having the righty playing against the lefty starters, and you're going to be having the lefty playing against the righty starters. And most pitchers in baseball, most starting pitchers are right-handed. But I think the bigger question for most fans has not been, is Nick Marquez platooning or is he starting? I think the big thing has been about where he hits in the batting order. And there's a lot of cases to be made for someone else batting fifth on an everyday basis. As I've often said, though, I don't make the lineups. All I do is talk about the games as they go on and then talk about the results we get. And then it's lather, rinse, and repeat 162 times a year and hopefully some playoff baseball as well. It's not necessarily about what I would do or what you would do as far as what's going to happen. The Braves are trying to win a baseball game, and not everything can be quantified based on solely the numbers. There is some value to Nick when it comes to the style of the bats that he has, the fact that he is a guy that, even if his numbers aren't huge, he is a guy that most pitchers look at and feel like, hey, I've got to be careful here because this guy is going to put a professional bat on me. I think that has a lot of value. But the fifth spot of the order, to me, is more of a run-producing spot. Quite obviously, historically speaking, that's a run-producing spot. And the days of batting Nick Marquez is fifth for the Braves could come to an end depending on what kind of upgrades they're able to make this winter and what kind of responsibilities they give some of the other guys in the batting order based on who comes in, who's in the house, and who might be the best option in that spot. I'll be really interested to see if the Braves get a catcher like a Yasmani Grandal. Maybe that would be a guy who would bat fifth for the Braves if they're able to go out and get somebody like that. But there's a lot of what-ifs that we've got to cover over the course of the winter, and that's going to be part of the fun is the speculation that we get as the Braves and the other teams start to make these moves and we start to find out where some of these players are going to land. So I hope that helps at least a little bit in answering some of your questions about the Braves. Keep those coming, and we'll have this discussion all winter long. But let's turn our focus to the Hall of Fame and the modern era ballot on which we find Braves legend Dale Murphy, who, after spending his full allotment of years on the writer's ballot, was unable to gain election to Cooperstown. But he is not alone on this modern era ballot It is packed with stars of the 80s and 70s and also one very notable executive in Marvin Miller, who a lot of folks think should already be in the Hall of Fame. But I guess you could say that about all 10 of the guys on this ballot. And to help me dissect all of that, I want to welcome in my buddy Graham Womack. You can follow him on Twitter at Graham Dude. That's G-R-A-H-A-M-D-U-D-E. 
I have long enjoyed Graham's interviews and all the historic pieces that he's put together over the years. And I thought, what better time to have him on the show than to discuss some of the historic accomplishments that get you into the Hall of Fame and 10 men who are trying to find their way there on this modern era ballot. Graham, welcome to the show, and I appreciate you making the time to chat about the Hall of Fame with me. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me on, Grant. Well, I'm very excited to uh, talk about this ballot. I'm sure you are as well. It's one of the things, it's kind of a, for a baseball fan, especially someone who enjoys history, it's just something I low-key enjoy every year. It's seeing who's going to be on these special committee ballots, the Veterans Committee, in air quotes, as it were. And I think we got a really exciting ballot this year. Nine players and one executive that each have compelling or at least unique cases. And we're going to get to all of them. But I want to ask you right off the top, just looking at these names, how hard do you think it's going to be for a player to gain election to the Hall of Fame with so much competition on one ballot? Well, I think what we're what we're going to see is we're going to see probably attention focus around, I'd guess, two or three players and one executive. And then I think most of the players are probably going to be relegated to the bottom end of the ballot. You know, looking at past voting, it tends to be all or nothing for players. There are 16 members on the committee and generally guys either, you know, will get upwards of seven votes, you know, the, the top few guys or everybody else gets less than three. And the Hall of Fame doesn't publish voting results. So we right. don't. We don't know exactly how it breaks down, but generally there's a better than not chance that you're going to be one of the guys at the bottom of the ballot. So the question is looking over this ballot. I mean, who are the guys? I mean, it definitely is a deep ballot this year. You could almost make a case for any guy on this ballot. It's, it's just a really, really solid ballot. If there's one player that I think deserves it among all of the other players on there, I think for me it would have to be Lou Whitaker. And one of the big reasons I think that, and I'm sure something that you know you saw as he went onto and off of the ballot, not even getting the 5% of the writer's vote, he was one and done. And it still baffles me as I look back on it. Do you think Lou Whitaker will be able to join Alan Trammell in the hall? I think and I hope he has the best chance of any guy on this ballot. I, I predicted recently on Twitter that I, I think that Whitaker will be going in. I think it'll be with 12 of 16 votes. Um, I, I just I don't see him getting 100% of the vote. But you figure Jack Morris and Alan Trammell went in two years ago. Whitaker didn't even make the ballot, and there was a huge uproar after that. Alan Trammell made a plug for Whitaker in his Hall of Fame speech. And so I think think any way you cut it, Whitaker, there's going to be a lot of attention on him uh, this cycle. But I don't think he's the only candidate who has a good shot. I I see Ted Simmons. He fell one vote short, I want to say, the last time he was up for consideration. I think he'll do really well. I think Marvin Miller is going to be right up there just because he gets – he gets a lot of votes every time. He's just, he's not been able to cross the hump. And then I wonder about guys like Thurman Munson or even Dale Murphy. I mean, I, there's a lot of guys on this ballot who, you know, could potentially make a run. Yeah. And it's a really great ballot overall. And you hit on some of the names or one in particular around this part of the country, we always wonder about, and that's when and if Dale Murphy is finally going to get the call to Cooperstown. What do you make of his candidacy this time around? Obviously, the numbers haven't changed, but maybe the overall perception of Dale Murphy over the last couple of decades and how much he's been an ambassador for the game, one would have to imagine that that would be something that would factor in as well, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, I mean, for me, Dale Murphy is, is more a question of when than if. Now, I could see Dale Murphy being one of those guys who gets into the Hall of Fame when he's in his 80s. I just... Uh, I don't see anything super pressing right now. I, I don't see a massive support around him, but... I do think he's a Hall of Famer. He's one of my all-time favorite players. My dad and I used to play wiffle ball when I was growing up and I was yeah. a kid, and my dad would impersonate this whole cast of characters or players, and one of them was this guy. He nicknamed Male Murphy. It was supposed to be Dale Murphy. I mean, my dad loves Dale Murphy, too, and we're out in California. So, I mean, 
I love Dale Murphy. I, I mean, I've interviewed him before. Uh, he's, he's a great guy. He was a great player, back-to-back MVP. But all that being said, I just I don't know if this is his year. I, I think Lou Whitaker is really going to be the focus this year. And then, you know, dark horse candidate, somebody like a Ted Simmons, mm-hmm. uh, potentially, who, who's a former Brave as well. <laughs> yeah, no, that is definitely true. And, and there are different names. Each one of them has a candidacy or a case that can be made for him. And, and for Murphy, you may be right. The wait may be a little bit longer. But I've always felt like, He's part of a decade in the 1980s that I think is underrepresented in the Hall of Fame thus far. We saw Tim Raines finally got an election a couple of years ago, and there are several 80s standouts on this ballot. Don Mattingly is the guy that falls in that category. Great peak for Donnie Baseball, but not the big counting numbers. When you look at where did his career numbers end up, where do you think he falls in this field? You know, it's interesting. I mean, Mattingly and Murphy sort of have similar cases. I mean, you know, at their peak, they were each the best players in their leagues. Each declined early, and Mattingly's case was due to injuries. When I interviewed Murphy, I asked him about it because, you know, he had that famous decline when he's about 31, 32. And I was like, hey, you know, what, what was going on? Were you injured? And he was like, eh, I was just slumping. And, you know, it happens in baseball. Um, but, yeah, Mattingly, you know, similar to Murphy, I, I don't know if this is his year. One thing that could help Mattingly is he keeps managing. He could have a Joe Torre-like right. candidacy you know, eventually, but that's a ways off at this point. Yeah, and I don't want to get too far off into the weeds, but when I do look at the 1980s, I can't help but think about the decade that came after in the 1990s and how much baseball changed. And uh, do you think it's possible we'll start to appreciate some of these players more now that we're kind of out from under the initial PED cloud or at least somewhat away from a lot of the speculation that went with the period immediately after a lot of these guys ended their careers? Yeah, I mean, I think being an 80s star helps. I mean, I think being an 80s star, you can get in with, you know, 400, maybe even a little less than 400 home runs. You do that in the 90s. I mean, you know, it's good luck on that. I mean, yeah. and that's not to say that that has to be the standard for all Hall of Famers, but I do think 80s players probably get a little more leeway than probably 90s, at least offensive players uh, for the Hall of Fame. So, I could see that benefiting guys like Murphy and Dave Parker and Dwight Evans is another. I'm, I'm thrilled to see Dwight Evans make the yeah. make the ballot this year. He's another of my favorite candidates. Actually, I'm I'm curious to see uh, Parker and Murphy and Evans if if them all being on this ballot if if it'll help elevate one another or if they'll cancel each other out. It'll be really interesting to see what happens. Yeah, that's a really fascinating way to look at it, too. And I want to ask you about Dwight Evans. You mentioned he's one of your favorite candidates on this ballot and a quietly outstanding career, if you look at it, on this ballot with Whitaker. And when it comes to wins above replacement, Whitaker's the only guy that's ahead of Evans as far as that's concerned. Uh, I know his Boston teammate Jim Rice was divisive for the voters, finally got in through the writers, but Evans may have been the better player for longer, I think, than Rice when you think about defensively what he offered and also just the longevity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I was, I was just thinking, I mean, with Evans, it, it's interesting. Um, I kind of consider him sort of similar to Carlos Beltran. And I, I did this poll through my website a few months ago where I had people voting about the best players not in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, Beltran just was hands down victorious, I want to say, for center field and just did really, really well. And it, it struck me that, you know, meanwhile, Dwight Evans, you know, I think for right field didn't didn't do quite so hot. But if you figure Evans back when he was a Hall of Fame candidate. I mean, he came and went from the ballot really fairly quickly. If he was a candidate today, he he might have a pretty good chance of climbing up and, you know, doing like a Tim Raines like ascendancy, yeah. you know, and eventually making it his ninth or tenth year. It's just the way that we look at Hall of Fame candidates has changed so much. So 
you know, unfortunately, like it's changed a lot with the BBWAA. I don't know if it's changed a lot with the veterans. So I, I'm thrilled that Evans made the ballot this year, but I, I don't have high hopes for him. I think he belongs in the Hall of Fame, but I don't know if I see 12 members of the modern baseball era committee feeling the same. Yeah, and as you look at these outfielders, I know Dave Parker kind of had a tale of two careers because he was a great player, an MVP candidate, or an annual MVP candidate, guy who won an MVP with the Pittsburgh Pirates, tremendous player, went on to be a very good DH in kind of a second career as he transitioned over into his latter years. Then you look at Evans, who's a guy that really his 20s were not all that spectacular. But when he hit 30, it's like his career found another gear. And as you mentioned earlier, it's like when Dale Murphy hit his 30s, he started to decline relatively quickly and was out of the game, I think, at 36, 37 years old. So as you look at all of these guys, I mean, they make tremendous cases when it comes to, I think, the peak of their careers, but very different style of players overall. And uh, from the longevity standpoint, Parker certainly hung around for a very long time, but uh, Dwight Evans is just a really interesting player that I think a lot of fans now would love the kind of player that he was if he was playing today's game, because in some ways he's kind of ahead of his time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he, he'd be a favorite of baseball prospectus if he, you know, if he was playing today. Uh, he, yeah. He just, and yeah, just a wonderfully unique career. I mean, yeah, I think it was Bill James wrote an article for Grantland several years ago, uh, the website Grantland. And he was yeah talking about, you know, Dwight Evans having this, really unusual career where he got better as he got older you know usually it's the other way around and yeah with Evans he was like a fine line he got better with age right yeah he was absolutely tremendous throughout his 30s and a big part of some very good Red Sox teams both in the 70s and of course in the middle 80s but they just weren't quite able to get over that hump and win that World Series during his time in Boston Uh, as a young fan growing up when we talk about rivalries I think Red Sox Yankees has been around longer than both of us and will be around long after we're gone Uh, but as a young fan I just kind of assumed that Thurman Munson was already a Hall of Famer but his career was tragically cut short as we all know and he may not have those final numbers of a contemporary like a Carlton Fisk or someone like that but Munson was a really big part of some really great Yankees teams do you think he'll eventually get in even if it's not his turn this time around? I have to think so. I mean, this is really subjective, but yeah, Munson is one of those guys that you just sort of think, yeah, he's a Hall of Famer, right? And it's like, no, I mean, yeah, Mattingly's that way too. There, there's a lot of guys actually, but yeah, Munson for sure. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's there's been there's been a bit of a bit of a grassroots movement kind of going on mm-hmm. over maybe the last couple of years to get Munson in. I don't know. I don't know if it's gotten to the point that it, it can actually get him in, but there are there are definitely people out there, um, you know, up, up around the New York area who are who are lobbying really hard for for Munson to to get in. Maybe a little too hard, honestly. I mean, these these people are persistent, but uh, but yeah, no, you 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 look at Munson and he's one of the best catchers in baseball history, at least up to age thirty two. You know, when he was tragically killed in a plane accident. So the question becomes. What would Munson have done with those remaining seasons? Did he have another productive few years in him, or would that have been it? And if that was it, is that enough for the Hall of Fame? I would argue because he was a catcher, it probably was, and just his role on kind of the 70s Yankees. But not everybody feels the same way that I do. No, I'd imagine not. And like you said, it's a little bit divisive, I think, when you look at, you know, longevity is one thing where, Sometimes a player can be around for so long that the argument starts to go the other way. Well, did they just compile these stats by the end of their career? But I think longevity is one of the 
points that you should look at to see a player's greatness over a longer period of time. But then we do find those candidates every once in a while that just they kind of catch lightning in a bottle like a, a Sandy Koufax or someone of that nature that he was just so good that how could you keep him out of the Hall of Fame? And obviously Munson doesn't fall into that kind of category. But I do look at it, and I'm interested to kind of see where you fall on this. But we do call it a Hall of Fame. It's a lot about numbers, but it's not just a Hall of Numbers. And when I do think of famous players and, like you said, great catchers, Thurman Munson's on a very short list of those players that can't be longer than about, what, 8 to 12 guys? Absolutely. No, and it's, it's interesting to see both he and Ted Simmons on this ballot. Cause, I mean, you got two of the best catchers in the 1970s are on this ballot. And I will say, too, just sort of on a tangent, yeah, we, we talk Hall of Fame. One thing I love about this ballot is you can make the fame case for pretty much anyone on this ballot. Oh, yeah. um, it's unfortunate the way the Hall of Fame is carving it up right now. They have veterans kind of considered by different era committees. And they the, the one for more recent players, which is 1988, I think, to now, basically, is the Today's Game Era Committee. Technically, a guy has to be retired for 16 years to be considered, so it's not all the way up to now, but it's basically anything since 1988. And, man, some of those ballots the last few years have been really, really weak. And, I mean, Harold Baines got in off it last year. But you look at this ballot, and this is a really solid ballot for fame. I mean, you can make the case for pretty much any of the guys on this ballot, fame-wise. I mean, they just... They're all big names. I mean, you've got a few different former MVPs on here. I mean, it's just, it's a really, really solid ballot that way. Uh, Ted Simmons, did you bring up, and he's come up a couple of different times, and, and folks may not know a lot about Ted Simmons. He's still in the game. I believe he has been working in the front office, even, I believe, with the Braves for a little bit of time. He was a GM for the Pittsburgh Pirates and nearly traded Barry Bonds over to the Braves in the early part of the 90s as well. So he's had a pretty fascinating run overall in his baseball life, but uh, as you go back and look at the numbers, you see a great catcher. But do you think in some ways, because he wasn't really that superstar player, but he was very good for a long time, that perhaps playing in the shadow of a Johnny Bench or even a Carlton Fisk might have been something kind of like Reigns for so long, got the stigma of playing in the shadow of Ricky Henderson? Yeah, I mean, Simmons, I think with him, it's he got unfairly stigmatized for his defense was considered, you know, really not that great of a defensive uh, catcher. And it's unfortunate because, yeah, when you when you look deeper into his record, he really, really wasn't that bad. He also had a pretty big decline after about age 30. He was a much different player. You know, you look at the early part of his career, him with the Cardinals. I mean, he's one of the best players in baseball. And then after age 30, he's with the Brewers, he's with the Braves. You know, with the Brewers, he still was a very good player, um, you know, a big Big contributor to their 1982 uh, Harvey's Wall or Harvey Wall or I think it's Harvey's Wall Bangers. That yeah. was the Brewers team that won the uh, won yeah won the the American League uh, pennant and uh, went to the World Series against the Cardinals. Um, but yeah, Simmons just you know between the defensive reputation and kind of the early decline, I think it hurt him a bit um, and unfairly so. I mean he he was one and done on the writers' ballot. He he deserved much more consideration than that, and then. You know, he's, he's actually done fairly well on the veterans' ballot. He he fell one vote short the last time he was up for consideration. And so a lot of times, it's funny, I've researched this at length. Like, I'm a total geek about this stuff. And a lot of times, guys who fall a vote short, they wind up getting in later. I mean, it's not just the kind of thing that, you know, if you fall short, that's it. I mean, you know, usually if people feel this, if the voters feel this way once about a player, eventually he gets in. So I do think Simmons is going to get in at some point. It's just a question of, 
you know, is all the focus going to be on Lou Whitaker this year or or somebody that we're not even expecting? Because, I mean, the committee can do some weird stuff. Like, you know, I don't think anybody was really expecting Harold Baines. No. Um, I remember it's funny. Yeah, my wife and I, we were, we were driving home from a Christmas party last year, and she she told me that the committee had elected Harold Baines, and I was just stunned. I mean, it was just surreal to hear. And I, I'm not one of those people, by the way, who's lost my mind over Baines getting in. Sure. I, I actually kind of think there's a case for him, but I, I was not expecting him to get in. No, he was one of the stranger candidates I think that's gotten in, at least since they've started to retool these committees, which hasn't been altogether that long. But there was also, a, I think, a long period of time where the Veterans Committee really wasn't, I think, doing a great job of getting guys their good second look and having them get the opportunity to jump into the Hall of Fame. But Baines opens up a really weird door. I'm not going to say Pandora's box because I, I don't want to over-sensationalize it either. But it, with some of the other 70 stars in this ballot, I mean, in particular, Dave Parker and Steve Garvey, I mean, these are guys that from a wins above replacement standpoint, both higher than Harold Baines. And then from a overall star or impact, if you want to start looking at that or peak years, I know they've been debated for a very long time, but with Baines getting into the Hall of Fame this year, doesn't it seem like it gives guys like this that may have been fringe better candidacies just based on the fact that a guy like Baines did get in? No, I mean, I so I've, I've definitely heard that argument, um, and I I disagree with it. So I I think that Baines really got in because the committee gave him credit for two strikes costing him three thousand hits, and sure. I think that was the major factor that got him in. I I think if he hadn't been within shouting distance of three thousand hits, I I don't know if it would have happened for him. I see Baines as almost kind of an aberrational candidate, and I I don't really believe in kind of unusual or bad candidacies setting precedents. We've just, we've had way too many bad candidates get in over the years with the Hall of Fame. And you don't ever hear voters saying, well, Tommy McCarthy was put in the Hall of Fame. So we, we have to put this, you know, yeah. mediocre outfielder in. I mean, it just, it doesn't happen. And I do believe the committee in its mind was, they felt they were justified in putting Baines in and they didn't feel like they were making any kind of special concessions for him or lowering the bar. I just don't think that's how they went about it. No, sure. And it may end up being more of a fan argument, to be honest with you, that kind of fans look at it. And there, there's some very fierce loyalty, of course, among all 30 teams that look at, hey, well, our guy is about as good as such and such guy or was better than such and such guy. So why isn't he getting into the Hall of Fame? And that kind of fuels some of the debate. And uh, Graham, I don't know about you, but I'm not so sure that the Hall of Fame doesn't enjoy seeing a lot of the debates and the ferocity of which that they come out each and every year because, hey, it's great publicity for the Hall of Fame in large part because people are talking about you. Yeah, and I mean, and who's going to stop going to the Hall of Fame because, no like, Harold Baines or Lloyd Wayner or whoever is in there? It's just, you know, once a guy gets in, he's in, and it doesn't it doesn't diminish the Hall of Fame for the rest of the great players who are in. Nobody thinks, oh, well, you know, um, uh, yeah, the Jesse Haynes got in, so that means that Ted Williams and Lou Gehrig are no longer Hall of Famers. I mean, people just don't think that way. No. You know, when you go to the Hall of Fame, you know, you, you stand in front of the plaques of people like Hank Aaron or Willie Mays, and you're just thrilled to see those plaques. And it doesn't happen that when you walk by Freddie Lindstrom or Travis Jackson's plaque that, you know, suddenly it's you're just like, well, those other plaques didn't mean anything. You, you still you were standing in, in front of legendary plaques earlier, and that that's what you remember. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that a lot of the fun of going to the Hall of Fame is not just the plaques, which are great, but it's the museum itself. I mean, the experience oh. there. Yeah, for fans that haven't done it, I mean, it's an all-encompassing experience. And I think you hit the nail on the head. There's not a plaque that's going to be put in there that's going to make that experience change for baseball fans that were looking forward to going to the Hall of Fame. 
Oh, absolutely, man. And I'm, I'm jealous of y'all uh, being driving distance from the Hall of Fame. I'm, you know, I live out in California. So it's like I I went when I was 13 and I've, I've been itching to get back ever since. I'm 36 now. So, so yeah, I know it's, it's a fantastic place. The whole village is just magical. No, it most certainly is. Let me ask you about a name that we've been saying for about four decades now. And a lot of people may not actually associate it with a guy who played the game, but that's Tommy John. The surgery that's named for him was cutting edge at the time. It has saved countless careers or extended countless careers uh, since he went under the knife about four decades ago. And it makes him somewhat of a trailblazer, at least in my eyes. Numbers, statistically speaking, and longevity give him a bit of a unique case there as well. Uh, But I've always been in favor of recognizing the complete legacy of Tommy John in this case. How do you feel about Tommy John and his place in baseball history? Yeah, put him in, and I'd, I'd put in his surgeon as well. I'd put in Dr. Frank Joe. No I, I think they're both Hall of Famers. I guess when you look at the dominating pitchers of all time, you're probably not going to find Tommy John on that list, but a guy that was within shouting distance of 300 wins and went on to have a second career because he did something that no one had done before him in terms of trying out an experimental surgery, I think there's a lot of value to that. And again, it's kind of an all-encompassing history of baseball is what you're looking to honor in the Hall of Fame, and I think he's got a big place as does Marvin Miller. And this is a guy that made an impact on the game that many people may not fully realize. And I think he's overdue. And I think you agree with that. But uh, what do you make of his chances to get in when you look at a ballot that includes nine really star players? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll preface this by saying, as, as I told you before we were on the air, you know, that, uh, that I'm definitely a supporter of Marvin Miller's uh, case. I mean, you know, he, he served as executive director of the Players Association from 1966 to 1982 he was a driving force for the abrogation of the reserve clause and for bringing free agency to baseball and, you know, even little stuff that fans might not really know, like want to say arbitration. Marvin Miller had a profound effect on baseball. And I would argue an effect for the better really, because I think it's a better sport when players can go where they want to go and be treated fairly. And, you know, it makes baseball more equitable because all this money is going to be there regardless. I mean, it's, TV has forever changed baseball with the amount of dollars that are in there. All that being said, I, I don't know if Marvin Miller has a great chance this time. He's This is the ninth time that I know of that he's been up for consideration. Um, he's had times where he's fallen a vote short, and, you know, I just, I just don't know if this is his year. I'd love it to be, but I don't know what's changed from the other times that he's been up for consideration. Obviously, he's no longer alive anymore. Um, I think when he fell a vote short, he was actually still alive because he, he lived a very, very long life and lived to be 95, I want to say, and finally passed away about six, seven years ago. And I just, I don't know if he would have support this time. Now, that being said, he's no longer alive, but maybe some of his detractors are finally starting to, you know, die and cycle off the, uh, the committee. So that could be a point in his favor. I, I don't know. I will say it's funny. One thing I'm actually planning to, to finally write at some point, I interviewed a bunch of 60s and 70s and 80s stars about Marvin Miller a couple of years ago, just about the impact he had. And, you know, it's funny, I have yet to publish it, but almost to a man, these guys were so supportive of Marvin Miller. And I just I had a lot of people coming out of the woodwork uh, who wanted to talk to me. And, you know, for guys who were in the 60s, 70s or 80s, I, I think a lot of them feel like they owe an eternal debt to Marvin Miller just because he, you know, he vastly changed things for them for the better. Well, he's a guy that has a great and unique candidacy, as do the other nine guys on this ballot. As we wrap up here, I'm going to put you on the hot seat as hot as it can be for guys who've been waiting a very long time to get into the Hall of Fame. 
Uh, who do you think gets in this year? Do you think it's one? Do you think it's more? And where do you see this vote going? I'm going to predict that Lou Whitaker gets in and that Marvin Miller and Ted Simmons come close, but that it's not quite their year. But I do think Lou Whitaker's going in. I would agree with that. I think he's probably the one candidate that, for a litany of reasons, probably has just a little bit more compelling case than some of the other guys, including perhaps a little bit of the recency of Alan Trammell going into the Hall of Fame. I don't think that hurt him at all either. And Jack Morris, for that matter, as uh, some of his teammates were recognized and uh, finally able to punch their ticket to Cooperstown. And I think Whitaker's plaque would look pretty good hanging up next to Trammell's if they could figure out a way to make that happen. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, by sabermetrics, like, Whitaker is one of the 10 best second basemen in baseball history. He's 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 a fully deserving Hall of Famer, and I just, I just hope enough members of the committee see that. Well, Graham, I really appreciate all your time, and I want to give you the opportunity to plug. I know you said you, you may be working on a Marvin Miller piece, but uh, what other kind of things are you working on, and where can folks find your work? Oh, sure. Um, so uh, check out my website at baseballpastandpresent.com. You can, uh, you can see the, uh, the Hall of Fame poll that I, that I was mentioning earlier, and I'll, I'll likely be publishing a Marvin Miller piece there somewhere in the next couple of weeks. It's, it's long overdue, and I definitely, I, yeah, I had a, had a bunch of great players. Uh, tell me really some cool stories about Marvin Miller, so I, I definitely want to get that out into the world. All right. Well, I look forward to reading that and everything else you've got over there. So make sure you check out the website and also follow Graham on Twitter. You can find him at Graham Dude. Really appreciate it, man, and look forward to talking with you again very soon. Absolutely, Grant. Uh, anytime. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, that'll wrap things up for this episode of From the Diamond. Thanks again to Graham Womack for jumping on and talking about the Hall of Fame. The modern era ballot will hear who gets into the Hall of Fame at the winter meetings, which are under a month away now. Those happening out in San Diego the first full week of December. As always, invite you to subscribe to From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Keep those ratings and reviews coming. I really appreciate those. And be sure you're following along on social media. On Twitter, at From the Diamond underscore. I am at Grant McCauley. On Instagram, at From the Diamond with no underscore. And at Grant McCauley there as well. And you can find every episode of the show and much more at FromTheDiamond.com. That wraps us up for this week. It's good to be back talking about baseball and fun to get our hot stove chat started. And we'll continue that all winter long as we see what the Braves and the other 29 clubs do as the hot stove season continues. Thanks for joining me yet again, and I will catch you next week with another episode of From the Diamond. Until then, so long, everyone.